as we open your word this morning, Lord, that you would just, that you would fill this place, that your Holy Spirit would just, just fill us, that you would open our hearts to receive from you, Lord Jesus. We ask that in your name, amen. So this morning, we're going to be looking at the last section of John chapter 18. This is our third installment of John 18. And this will also be the last time that we are in John for a little while. I mentioned a while back that I want to get to John 20 on April 12th, which is Easter Sunday, right? That's, that's, that's the passage dealing with the resurrection. And, um, and I want to look at chapter 19 in the weeks leading up to that as it deals with the crucifixion. And so we're going to take a little break for probably about five weeks and, um, we have a couple of guest speakers coming that I'm very excited about. David Zamora from, um, from Living Word Christian Fellowship and uh, Robbie Douglas will be here from uh, Amazing Grace or Saving Grace World Missions, two just great dynamic speakers. And then I'll be doing another little series. But um, this morning, we'll be picking up the text in verse 28. And remember last week, the rooster had just crowed, right? Jesus had betrayed, or Peter had betrayed Jesus three times. And you remember, we learned from one of the other Gospels that, that as soon as Peter betrayed Jesus that third time, and, and the rooster began to crow, Jesus and Peter's eyes met there in the courtyard. And it says that Peter had realized what he had done. And it says that he went away, and that he wept bitterly. And that's kind of where we left off. And so we pick it up here, and in verse 28, it says, Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So again, Jesus has just been arrested in the garden. He's taken to the home of the high priest, and he's interrogated there. And so as we pick up the text here, it's very early in the morning, right? And it's dawn. The sun is just coming up on this Friday morning. And it was customary for the Romans to address legal issues in Israel very early. It was the first thing they did in the day. And so, so far, we see that Jesus has been subjected to this illegal trial in the home of the high priest. He was tried at night, which was against the law. And he was just sort of assumed guilty. And the other Gospels tell us that, that the high priest, they brought false witnesses to lie about Jesus and to make up things about him because they didn't have any real crimes to convict him of. And so he was tied up. And the other Gospels, we see that Jesus was already beginning to be abused. He was hit in the face. You know, stuff with the, the, this, the whole thing is starting to unfold already. And now they take Jesus to Pilate. The, the, the Roman governor of Judea. And Pilate, he's sort of, a, um, he's sort of an interesting character. He, he governed the area for about 10 years, from about 26 to 36 AD. And as we know, he was a Roman, and he was in charge of this, this kind of area here in Asia Minor in the Middle East. And what the Romans did, it was much like, much like ambassadors today, right? They would be sent out to govern different areas. You know, if you get posted in... England, or Russia, or China, or the UN, that's kind of a big deal if you're an ambassador, right? It's a great honor, and it comes with a degree of, 
of, of dignity and, and respect, right? It comes with a degree of, of position and power. On the other hand, if you get posted in Yemen or the Congo or something like that, right, it's not so great. It's sort of a punishment a little bit. And apparently, Pilate had, had fallen out of favor with the Roman government. And because of that, he was sent to Israel. And the Romans really considered Israel to sort of be the, it was the armpit of the Roman Empire, right? Nobody wanted to go there if they didn't have to. It was like getting stationed in, in Nome, Alaska, if you were in the military, right? It was regarded as, as the worst place to have to serve. And Pilate was regarded as one of the worst governors to ever serve in this region. The Roman position was to allow the Jews to worship their God as they saw fit. Even though it didn't really fit with the whole kind of Roman philosophy, they, they wanted the, the Jewish tax money, they didn't want the rebellion, so they, they kind of allowed the, the Jews to just to continue to worship. And Pilate was a, was a very fervent advocate of, of Roman emperor worship. And so he kept trying to, to force the Jews into this Roman form of worship. And several times he set up these idolatrous images in Jerusalem, and he nearly started riots. A revolution was kind of brewing. And um, his constituency was, was constantly upset with him. Pilate despised the Jews, and likewise, they didn't like him, right? He was resentful that he got posted there. He didn't like their culture. He couldn't understand their religious beliefs. At this time, the Jews, and later the Christians, by, by the Roman Empire, they're regarded as atheists, which is kind of funny because, you know, we, we believe in God. But because we didn't believe in, in the pantheon, right? We didn't believe in all the Greek and Roman gods. We believed that there was only one God. They, they counted us as atheists. And not only that, but the Jews, as you know, are historically a little bit rebellious, right? They don't take well to to being dominated. Look at the Maccabean Revolution in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Over and over again, they, they're always kind of, kind of stirring up trouble and refusing to submit to Roman standards. And so Pilate was upset by that, and generally speaking, he treated the Jews pretty cruelly. And so likewise, if, if somebody doesn't like you and is always treating you bad, you begin to reciprocate that, right? The Jews also hated Pilate. He was the symbol of, of Roman occupation. He was the symbol of oppression. And so the fact that the Jewish leaders went to Pilate and dealt with him, I think it shows the depth of their hatred towards Jesus. Right? If they're going to deal with this guy that they hate to get Jesus killed, it shows how much more they hated Jesus. And so they bring Jesus to Pilate. But look what it says. It says that they wouldn't go into Pilate's house because they didn't want to be defiled. It says the Passover was coming. And if a Jewish person entered a Gentile home, they became ceremonially unclean and they weren't allowed to participate in the Passover. And you have to understand that the Passover, it was the, it was the, the greatest festival of the year. right? It was, it was Christmas and Easter and the Super Bowl all wrapped up into one. Remember, it was sort of commemorating the, the, the freedom 
when the people escaped Egypt there in Exodus. And so as we look at this, I hope that you can see the great, the, the really sickening irony here. The Jewish leaders, they didn't want to set foot in Pilate's home because they didn't want to become unclean. But they were totally cool with murder. They were totally cool with lying and falsely incriminating this innocent man. It's kind of like this. Imagine you're a bank robber, and you've got a partner, and you guys are in the bank, and you're, and you're walking out, and you've got your sacks of money that you just looted, and on the way out to the getaway car, your partner says, hey, grab that stapler. What do you think I am, a common thief? <laughs> That's kind of the idea there. Right? It doesn't make any sense. Right? This, is the, this is the height, this is the, the, the epitome of, of religious hypocrisy. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters, so they would not be defiled. But they didn't hesitate to condemn an innocent man to death. I think it shows how, how blinded and how hate-filled these opponents of Jesus were. And, and there's this glaring double standard when it comes to Jesus. And, and we see that today still. And I don't know if you've noticed, but it seems like like our world and our culture is growing ever increasingly hostile towards, towards Jesus, towards the Word of God, towards Christianity. And, and the Word of God, it wants us to accept, or not the Word of the world, wants us to accept everything that they believe in, right? We're, we had better accept abortion and gay marriage and evolution and transgender issues and all this stuff and the list goes on and on of the things that we are required to embrace. And if we don't, we're labeled intolerant. And that's the new unpardonable sin, isn't it? Intolerance. Don't let anybody find you to be intolerant. The world doesn't want to hear what we have to say. It doesn't want to tolerate our beliefs. It doesn't want to tolerate us but it wants us to embrace everything that they're pushing forward. I was pointing this out to a guy once we were having a conversation, and, and, and I was talking about how, how this tolerant world is so intolerant of, of, of Christianity. And he said, oh, you're, you're missing the nuance of it, he tells me. He says, in order for a society to be truly tolerant, it has to be intolerant of intolerance. <laughs> Do you hear yourself? you listen to the words coming out of your mouth? Right? To quote from one of the great cinematic masterpieces of my generation, Billy Madison, right? You remember this quote. It says, Mr. Madison, what you've just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I've ever heard. At no point in your rambling, incoherent response were you even close to anything that could be considered a rational thought. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. I award you no points, and may God have mercy on your soul. Right? That's, that's exactly how I felt when he told me that. For society to be tolerant, it has to be intolerant towards intolerance. And it's amazing how increasingly intolerant of Jesus and biblical Christianity, our culture is becoming. Well, you know, 
Culture doesn't dare speak a word against Islam or against Buddhism or Hindu or anything else. But man, it's open season on the church, on Christianity, on Jesus. You know, if somebody makes a little drawing of Muhammad, woo, right, there's riots, burn, buildings are getting burned down. But it's totally cool to dress up like Jesus and dance around in gay pride parades and all this stuff. And there's just such a, a double standard and a degree of, of hypocrisy. And, and it's my absolute belief that we're going to see this increase as time goes on. And I don't know, I'm not making predictions about the second coming and when it's going to happen. But I know this. We're a day closer today than we were yesterday. I, and it seems like the day of the Lord is imminent. And it seems like this is the fourth quarter, right? And it's the end of the fourth quarter, and the enemy is really beginning to, to push their game. Peter tells us in his first epistle, and, and Peter, 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. He says, look, it's going to happen. Don't be surprised when it happens. And remember what Paul says to Timothy. He says, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. They're both saying the same thing. Don't let it shock you. Don't let it be a big surprise when the world comes up against you. Jesus says, look, the world hated me. Of course they're going to hate you when you follow me. And we see it all around us. Verse 29. So Pilate went outside and said to them, what accusation do you bring against this man? And I don't know, but I imagine Pilate was probably a little irritated. It's dawn. I don't know you guys, but I'm a, I'm a night owl. I like to go to bed about 2 and get up at 9, ideally. It doesn't work out that way, of course. But I hate early mornings. You know, I was in construction for years, and I'd get up at 5 in the morning, and I just always hated it. Just bitter and angry in the morning. You know, and about 10 o'clock, I was okay. Like 10 to 2, that's my, that's my prime time. But, you know, and so I imagine Pilate there, he's, he's getting torn away from his coffee and morning newspaper. You know, he's, he's, he doesn't want to be out there dealing with this right now. And he says, what did this guy do, this Jesus character? What is it that you're accusing him of? And they answered him, verse 30, if this man were not doing evil, would we, not have, we would not have delivered him over to you. What did he do? He's bad. He's a criminal. That's what he did. Right, that's not much of an answer to present a judge, is it? Imagine you're in a court of law. Your Honor... The defendant is guilty of being a criminal. I mean, that's certainly not an answer that a, that a Roman magistrate was going to accept, was it? And we learn in Luke's gospel that they finally came up with some false charges against Jesus. It says in Luke 23, 1, Then a whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. Then they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. And, it's saying, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. So they're bringing these charges against Jesus. That he's leading the nation astray. That he's opposed to paying taxes. 
and that he's claiming to be the Jewish king. So first of all, Jesus wasn't leading the nation astray. Right? The Jewish leaders were just jealous because he was eroding their power base. He's eroding their, their status in the community. He's eroding the, he's, he's, he's rocking the boat and they don't like it. Second, Jesus wasn't opposed to paying taxes, was he? Remember the Pharisees, they tried to trick Jesus. Remember they had a, there was a crowd and Jesus is teaching and they, and they say, hey Jesus, should we pay taxes to Rome or not? And they thought, yeah, we got Jesus trapped. If he says yes, it's going to look like he supports Rome. And if he supports Rome, he's going to lose his following among the Jews. If he says no, he's going to look like a rebel and we'll have reasons to bring charges against him. And they're, they're rubbing their hands, I imagine, like a James Bond villain, you know. And they're, and they're thinking, you know, we finally, we've got this scoundrel Jesus trapped. And Jesus says, all right, let me see a coin. They give him a coin. Whose head's on it? Well, Caesar. And then what Jesus says, okay then. Give to Caesar what's Caesar's, and give to the Lord what's the Lord's. And he just shut down their little trap. And we see there he wasn't opposed at all to paying taxes. The priests were, were flat out lying to condemn Jesus. And then they say, look, and he's claiming to be king. And that would have got Pilate worked up a little bit, as we're going to see in a few minutes. The first two charges were, were out and out lies. The third charge was a definite misrepresentation of the truth. And Pilate, he sees right through it. And Pilate says, look, take him yourselves and judge him by your own laws. Basically, Pilate says, look, don't bother me with your religious matters. I have, I have better things to do than to deal with this. I don't need a lesson on Judaism. If this Jesus character is a, is a criminal under your law, deal with him. Punish him, punish him according to your own laws. Right? And in that time, the Jews had a degree of autonomy. They were able to, to prosecute and punish crimes up to, but not including capital punishment. Right? They were allowed to imprison, they were allowed to, to scourge, all these things, but they weren't allowed to execute a man without Roman consent. And so the Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. So we'd like to kill him, but we can't. We're not allowed to execute. Only you can do that. And as I said, right, the Jews were given a certain amount of freedom to practice their own law as long as it didn't conflict with Roman law. And Rome had taken away the right to execute a person. And they still did it occasionally. We saw that in Acts, right, when they, when they stoned Stephen to death. We saw that with the woman caught in adultery when they were getting ready to stone her. But it wasn't necessarily legal. And the priests say, listen, we would like to deal with them ourselves, but we aren't allowed to execute people. And they're probably hoping that Pilate would give them permission to stone Jesus. Right? That was the, that was the preferred method of execution under Levitical law, stoning somebody to death. Crucifixion was, was a, a, a distinctly Roman form of punishment. The Jews never crucified crucified people on their own. And so the Jews, they definitely would have preferred to stone Jesus. But dead is dead, right? They'd settle for the cross. 
If they couldn't stone him, crucifixion would work. But they didn't realize the bigger picture here. And John writes in verse 32 that this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Remember, Jesus had said numerous times that he was going to be crucified. In John chapter 3, he talks about the Son of Man being lifted up, alluding to events back in Numbers chapter 21. On other occasions, he talks about taking up your cross and following me. And the Bible predicts in, in, in amazing detail how the Messiah would die. And most of you guys are familiar with these verses. Remember Psalm 22. David's writing, and he says in verse 16, For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. For my clothing they have cast lots. This is an amazingly specific prophecy, isn't it? Prophesying about being crucified. And this, this prophecy was given centuries before crucifixion was even invented. Talking about piercing his hands and feet. Talks about how he can count all of his bones. And we know from the gospel accounts that none of Jesus' bones were broken. We know from the gospel accounts that the, that the soldiers cast lots for Jesus' clothes. Just like it's predicted here. Isaiah chapter 52 verse 14. As many were, as asto as many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Talking about how Jesus was so greatly abused that he didn't even look human anymore. You, wouldn't even, you couldn't even recognize Jesus if you saw him. Verse 53, 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we were healed. Zechariah 12.10 And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look upon me him who they have pierced they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Again talking about how how they're going to look at Jesus. This is a, a prophecy in the future. The Jews are going to look at Jesus, the one whom they pierced, and they're going to realize what they did. And in verse 13, or chapter 13, verse 6, it says, And if one asks him, what are these wounds on your back? He will say, the wounds I received in the house of my friends. And the King James translates it like this. And one shall say unto him, what are these wounds in thine hands? And he will answer, those which I received, which I, or those which I was wounded in the house of my friends. And we see these, these prophecies, and these are just a few of the literally hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament concerning Jesus and, and, and how he was going to die, when and why he was going to die, written hundreds and, and thousands of years before Jesus was born. And so the priests here, they thought that they were in charge. Or they thought that they were the, the movers and shakers. They thought that they were the power brokers. But they were pawns, playing into God's eternal plan. And sure, they were exercising their own free will, but they were doing so to further 
God's sovereign divine will. God already had a plan. And he was using these guys and their evil hearts and their evil intentions to accomplish his perfect will. And, and this isn't in my notes at all. But I was just, as I'm talking, I was just thinking of Romans 8. When, when Paul talks about the Lord uses, works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. And in the end of Genesis, when Joseph is talking and he says, what man intended for evil, God used for good. And I, and I think that, I don't know if there's somebody who needs to hear that this morning, but there may be things going on in your life. There may be people who are working in your life trying to orchestrate evil. But God has a bigger plan. And he has a bigger picture. And those things that the enemy wants to use for evil, he's going he's gonna to recycle them. He's going to use them for good in your life. As it says in Jeremiah 61, I think, he's going to give us joy for our mourning and beauty for ashes. He's going to take those broken down things in our life and he's going to recycle them and reform them and reshape them and make something beautiful and new and wonderful and, and useful for the kingdom of God. That's good news, isn't it? God already had a plan. And he was using the evil intentions of these men to fulfill his divine will. And I have to wonder on Judgment Day, when everything's finally opened up and revealed, and all of a sudden these guys just get that flash of understanding, and they realize what they've done. Oh my gosh. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? So Pilate, he brings Jesus in, and at this point, all the religious leaders, they're outside, right, because they didn't want to get defiled. He brings Jesus in, and he says, are you the king of the Jews? Now, I'm not an expert on ancient languages, but as David Guzik often says, I, I, he always says, I'm not smart enough to know the ancient languages, but I'm smart enough to listen to the guys who do, right? And, and that's kind of where I am on this. So when Pilate asks this, the emphasis there is on the word you. He says, are you the king of the Jews? Really, you, Jesus, you're the king? You're a poor, homeless, itinerant Jewish preacher, an uneducated construction worker? You're the king of the Jews? But this is a big question that he's asking. Right? The Romans at this time were controlling Israel. And Herod, who we'll see later on, was sort of a king, but not really. He was appointed by Rome, and he was really a, a puppet of Rome. And so if Jesus were running around saying that he's a king, right, stirring up rebellion, that was legitimate grounds for Jesus to be executed. And so Pilate says, are you really the king of the Jews? Is that what you're claiming? That, that's what you want to go with? And Jesus answered, did you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it about me to you? Jesus says, well, why do you ask? Right? And he kind of turns around. He says, why do you say this? Who do you think you are? And he says, is this your own question? Or did somebody else tell you to ask me that? And if he was asking, are you a political threat, right, that would have been his own question, asking for his own reasons. 
If he was asking if Jesus was the Messiah, that would have been a, re- a, a, a question the religious leaders would have prompted him to ask. And, and it kind of reminds me of, of the blind man who was healed in John chapter 9. Remember, after he's healed, he's interrogated by the leaders. And they're saying, who did this? Who healed you? And remember what the guy says? He says, why do you want to know? Do you want to become one of his disciples too? And Pilate, Jesus asked Pilate, he says, who told you? Did you figure this out yourself or did someone else tell you? And Pilate probably knew who Jesus was, by by name at least. He probably heard of the miracles, probably heard about the triumphant entry, you know, and the people outside, and, you know, they probably heard about Jesus stirring up the temple and chasing out the money changers. The governor, he had to know, right? He had informants. He had people giving him important details of what was going on in the region. But Jesus says, well, how do you know these things? Have you been following my ministry too? And we see that Jesus, and he shows no fear here. And we're going to see that it ends up being Pilate who's on trial, not Jesus. Jesus really ends up turning the tables on Pilate. And Jesus is kind of saying, "What well, do you want a, a Bible study here too, Pilate? Do you want to become one of my disciples? And Pilate answered in verse 35, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Pilate, like, like a good Roman, looked down on the Jews right, and on Jewish affairs. Right? They, they were a very, I mean, they were, had a big superiority complex over the, over the people they ruled. And, and so, so Pilate says to Jesus, am I a Jew? How would I know if you're the Messiah? And then he says, it was your own people. It was your priests that brought you here to be executed. And, and I think as Pilate said this, it was intended to be, and it probably was hurtful to Jesus, Right? His own people, the people that he came to save, were here putting him on trial, trying to deliver him over to death. And the Greek word here used for brought is paradidomi. And it means to hand over or to to betray. And so Pilate's kind of rubbing it in. He says, look, your own people betrayed you. Who are you to have this attitude right now? Kind of rubbing it in that Jesus was betrayed. And so Pilate asked Jesus, says, tell me, what have you done? Why do your own people want to kill their king? Pilate says, what have you done? And Jesus could have answered, you mean besides creation? Recently? Well, I walked on water, turned water into wine. I calmed the storm with just my voice. I fed thousands of people from a picnic lunch twice. I healed the sick. I raised the dead. I cast out demons. Is that what you mean, Pilate? Jesus answered in verse 36, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. So Jesus answers Pilate here. And he says, my kingdom isn't, isn't physical. It isn't temporal. It's not of this world. 
And Jesus says, I am indeed a king, but not like you think. Not an earthly king. Not a, not a geographical king with, with borders and boundaries and a, and a kingdom. Jesus says, if I were an earthly king and I was arrested, my followers would be here right now on the attack. There were, they would have fought to stop me from being arrested. There would be a, a battle raging right now. He says, my kingdom isn't here. My kingdom isn't on earth. My kingdom is a, is a heavenly kingdom. Paul says in Colossians 1, one of my favorite verses, verse 13, he says, for he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. He says, look, there was an old physical kingdom that people used to belong to, but there's a new kingdom. He says the kingdom of Jesus, and that's what Jesus is talking about here. My kingdom, and it's not this old physical kingdom. It's a, it's a kingdom of light. It's a, it's a spiritual thing, and that's what Jesus is expressing here. He says my kingdom isn't a, isn't a physical domain. It's, a, it's the spiritual realm, and so Pilate misses the whole point. And in verse 37, he says, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate says, so you are a king. And in Luke 23, two, 3, Jesus replies, you said it. He says, that's right. Jesus here says, look. I was born into this world for one reason, to bring the truth. I came to share the gospel message, the good news. I, I, I came for the cross. And he says, everyone who loves the truth, everyone who wants to know the truth, everyone who wants to, to understand reality, they recognize what it is that I'm saying. You may remember the first time that you heard the gospel. Or maybe it wasn't the first time you heard the gospel, but the first time that the gospel really clicked, right? And it just sort of rang true. And you knew that the gospel message was true. And you didn't even know why necessarily, but you just knew in your heart that, that, that Jesus was Lord and that he died for your sins and that you needed to repent and be saved. And that's what Jesus is talking about here, the spirit bearing witness. And we see this idea throughout the New Testament. The Holy Spirit bearing witness. The Holy Spirit speaking to the hearts of men, confirming the truth of the gospel message. Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 8, verse 16. And he says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God. So Pilate said to him, you bear witness of truth. What is truth? And after he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt with him. Pilate says, what is truth? It's a good question, isn't it? It's an interesting question that Pilate poses. And I wonder how he said it. Was he sarcastic when he said it? Was he sad when he said it? Right? The Romans and the Greeks were known for their, for their philosophical thinking. 
for their, for their great philosophers. They were always seeking after truth, seeking after the meaning of life. And it may be that this old politician had just given up the search. Maybe so many compromises in his life, so many letdowns. And, and, and Pilate may have just been left jaded and, and disillusioned by life. And he says, what is truth? Is there really any abject truth left in this world? And what is truth? Right? The dictionary says, that which is true. Thanks, Webster. That's helpful. <laughs> or in accordance with fact or reality. That which is in accordance with fact or reality. Correct knowledge, right? Many people today believe in a relative truth, don't they? Well, that might be true for you. That, that's, that's your truth, right? Your, your religion, those rules are set for you, but that's not for me, right? Lying and stealing morality, right and wrong. I mean, that's good for you, but, you know, it's whatever. You, if you want to believe in Jesus, that, that's cool. That's your truth. But, but the Bible is outdated, and those rules no longer apply. And it implies that, that truth is relative, and that truth is changing, and that truth can be dictated by, by what your culture and society believe. But that's not so, church. The Word of God is the absolute truth, and it's unchanging. Truth, the Word of God, is supposed to change us, not the other way around. Church, truth is supposed to change us. We're not supposed to change truth. And Jesus says, look, there is no other truth. There's no other way to be saved. Remember Jesus famously says in John 14, 6, I am the truth. He says in John 17, 17, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. 1 John 5, 6. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is truth. Sort of a little trinity of truth there, isn't it? Jesus is the truth. The Father is the truth. The Spirit is the truth. Pilate asks, what is truth? And Jesus says, well, I'm glad you asked because it's me. I am the truth. And something about Jesus, it seems, touched Pilate. And we know at one point, Pilate's wife has a vision. And she tells Pilate, look, don't have anything to do with this trial. It's, gonna, it's not going to lead to a good place. And so Pilate, he takes Jesus back outside after this interrogation. And he says, look, he's not guilty. He didn't do anything. And it's important to note this not guilty verdict. It's important to note that there was no sin or no crime that Jesus could rightly be convicted of. Because remember, John the Baptist proclaimed Jesus was the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. And remember at Passover, right, Jesus was going to be slaughtered. Jesus was the Lamb of God that was about to be slain. And it's very clear in Exodus chapter 12 that the Passover Lamb must be spotless perfect, without blemish, and he must stand up to three days inspection. And so here Jesus, he's inspected by the Roman magistrate. 
and he's found to be innocent. He's found to be without sin, like the perfect lamb that was about to be led away to slaughter. He's not guilty of any crime. And so Pilate, he should have released Jesus right here. Rome's motto was fiat justitia ruat caleum, which means justice be done though the heavens fall. And what they're saying is, look, no matter what, let justice prevail. The Roman court system was all about justice. But Pilate, he wasn't concerned about justice. He was only concerned with himself and how to protect himself. He was worried about his job. And in the end, he failed all all three things that he was supposed to worry about. He failed himself spiritually. We know historically that he ended up losing his job. And we know that he didn't end up end up looking out for Roman ideals. What Pilate does here is he looks for a loophole. He looks for a way to save face and to appease the masses. He didn't have the courage to do the right thing when it was hard. We find Pilate here, he knows what he's supposed to do, but he's, but he's afraid of the crowd. And as we're going to see as, as this trial unfolds, he grows more and more afraid of Jesus too. So he says in verse 39, But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you Jesus, the king of the Jews? So they had this tradition, right? At Passover, one convicted criminal who was about to be executed was granted amnesty. He was was set free. And it's interesting that Pilate, the politician, he seems to know at least a degree about about the religious tradition. But he didn't know Christ. And I think that's like so many people today. So many people today, they know about the traditions of the church. They know about our faith. But tragically, they don't know the Lord. Right? And it's it's a tragedy when anyone dies without Christ. Right? If some pagan witch doctor in South America dies without Jesus, that's tragic. But it's even more tragic when when a religious person, when a person who knows about the Bible, when a person who who, who knows about Jesus and attends church, when they die and go to hell. It's all the more tragic because they they were so close, right? They had the truth within their grasp. Think of it like like a football game. I think there's a football game today, isn't there? Um, Now imagine... This is two sports analogies in one day. This is painful for me, by the way. Um, I'm, I'm doing it for you, Peter. Thank you. Imagine there's an underdog team that nobody expects to win. And they come up from behind. Now imagine they're one touchdown away from winning. And the time is almost out. Now imagine the last play before the time runs out they throw a pass at the one-yard line, and it's intercepted. Seems like that happened recently, didn't it? So close to a glorious victory. And to fall short and lose. So many people are so close. 
They have everything they need to know. But they don't make that faith connection. They fall short and they don't make it to heaven. Pilate, according to scripture, finds this, this horrible guy, Barabbas, a murderer, an insurrectionist, a, a revolutionary. A guy that no one, especially the Jewish leaders, wanted in the streets. This is a guy who's always stirring up trouble with the Romans. And so Pilate gives him a choice. Do you want Jesus or Barabbas? And of course he's thinking, they're going to choose to set Jesus free because they don't want this scoundrel loose. But they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. Such a, a sad scene here. The people are so deceived by sin that they choose darkness over the light. There's something special to me about John's gospel. All the gospels are, are unique in their own way. They're all divinely inspired. But I love the way that John portrays Jesus. As just, just a real guy, authentic and, and genuine, sort of the, the essence of truth. And there's three incidents in John where, where Jesus, he, he reveals himself as the truth to different people. John chapter 3, Jesus is dealing with, with Nicodemus at night, this, this religious leader. John chapter 4, Jesus is dealing with this Samaritan woman who was not seeking the Lord, not really hard-hearted either, just kind of indifferent going through life. Here in John chapter 18, Jesus is dealing with this hard-hearted, secular, worldly man. And in all three of these instances, Jesus meets these people where they are. And he makes himself available to them. In all three of these instances, Jesus gives these people an opportunity to believe in him and to become disciples. And I love that about Jesus. That no matter where we are, he'll meet us there and reveal himself and give us an opportunity to seek him. And Jesus is the only real spiritual truth. Anything else is a counterfeit and a lie and is designed to distract us from the Lord. But Jesus, he's unchanging, he's eternal, he's truth. And here's the thing. You can yell at the top of your lungs that the sun isn't bright. But if you go outside and stare at it, you're going to go blind, right? Your declaration doesn't affect the sun. And the same concept with Jesus. Whether we choose to believe in him or not, it doesn't affect him. It doesn't affect whether or not what he says is true. It doesn't affect whether his words are true. It affects our relationship with him. Jesus says, look, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We can accept that or we can reject that. 
But it doesn't change the facts. Jesus is still the way. He's still the truth. He's still the life, whether we believe it or don't believe it. His word is immutable. It's unchangeable. And I would encourage you to believe it, to believe in him, to trust him, because he is the only true life. I encourage you to believe. Heavenly Father, your word is true. You are true. And Father, we just pray that you would help us to walk in that truth and to abide in that truth. And Father, we pray for anyone here who is wavering and they haven't decided if they're going to believe that truth or not yet, Lord. That you would soften their hearts, Lord. That you would meet them where they are. That they would surrender their life to you. And you would transform them and you would change them and you would forgive them of their sins. And Father, we pray that you would just continually remind us that no matter what the world says, no matter what the world does, that you remain, that you are endure, and your truth endures. We ask that in your name, Jesus.